Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. Uh, and here we are in uh, lockdown podcast week four. And I'm joined again today by Alex Newman, who I spoke to a couple of weeks ago. How are you doing, Alex? I'm good, thanks. Well, in the circumstances, good. Thanks, John. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. Thank you. I'm going to talk later to Phil Oakley uh, about his piece this week, which is looking at the works of Ben Graham, uh, the famous investor, and uh, what we can learn from that in today's very strange markets. But before we do that, we're going to talk about the FTSE 350 review, which we wrote probably two months ago, was it, Alex? Yeah, it was at the end of January. It's the last uh, edition of January. So what feels like a very long 10 weeks ago. It was a very long 10 weeks ago. And basically, the, the huge effort that, that's gone into that appears largely redundant uh, as of today. So what we decided to do was, was update it. And you've turned that around in super quick time. It's amazing uh, what you've done there, Alex. Well, I mean, it's a credit to the company's writers for um, revamping their views on, on all of the big sectors, really, um, which has uh, yeah, been a big effort this week. We've got it together. And I mean, as you said, views from 10 weeks ago, it's interesting looking back on the um, the coverage we, we had then because we did mention the virus a few times, but both um, us and the broader market were seeing it very much then as a, as a sort of China-specific story. And obviously the contagion and the, you know, the pandemic uh, had yet to materialise. Obviously, we're in a, a completely different world now. So um, yeah, updating the, the views for what it means for each of, our, each of the sectors we, we follow was, I think, something we felt we needed to do. Indeed. And, and it all started sort of with a big spreadsheet as well, didn't it? So we basically got a list of the, all the constituents of, of the FTSE 350 and then kind of broke down all the sort of various types of impact that they were Reporting. So there is this enormous document seat behind this huge effort. Yeah, which um, which readers uh, will have access to, and we're gonna we're gonna try and keep it updated in in, in the weeks ahead. Um, I think this is mainly because we cover all these companies, but we were drowning in the I suppose the number of uh, updates and just the implications of of what lots of companies are saying. So you know sometimes we're just getting kind of almost throwaway trading updates where. Companies awarding on liquidity, saying earnings visibility has vanished, pulling guidance, the sort of things which would which would you know n- normally make the business front pages in in any ordinary year. Um, so we wanted to kind of collate it all into into one digestible format, hopefully, where um, investors in in the biggest companies listed in in, in London have a reference point to, to try and get their thinking together. Hopefully, so, so we've sort of grouped all the the sort of various impacts and actions. So we've got things like you know. All, all all of the sort of dividend cuts, capital capital programs that have been cut, all that sort of thing, and, and, and groups as easy for readers to see. Yeah, exactly. And you know whether whether guidance is is still there in the majority of cases, it's it's either been pulled or it's been sharply reduced. Other kind of cost cutting measures which um, which companies have announced to, to try and uh, either shore up their balance sheets or just hold the fort for the the coming months. So it's it's a sort of condensed version of the RNSs and announcements that companies have been putting out in the in the past month uh, and a half. It's, it's an amazing document. And uh, yeah, we're going to be uh, releasing that to the public. Well, I, can't, I don't know when this is going to get released to the public, but some, at some point in the next day or so. So uh, th- thanks for your effort on that, Alex and, and all the team. It's been amazing. So what we're going to do now is rather than me interviewing you about 350 companies in the FTSE 350, you've got some of the team uh, on the uh, on the Hangouts, which is what we're using to record this, and you're going to speak to them about about what the particular impacts on their sectors are. So I will hand over to you now, Alex, and uh, get the rest of the team in this conversation. Yeah, which is reassuring because I'm, I'm not quite sure I could uh, keep 350 companies in, in, my, in my head at one time. From the company's team, we have... I'm Alex Hamer. I'm the resources writer at Investor Chronicle. 
So I've been looking at oil and gas and mining companies. Like for everyone, it's been a big, big few weeks for us. We've also have Emma. Hi, I'm Emma Powell. And I cover um, property, so ranging from house builders to um, you know office landlords, retail landlords, and yeah, again, there's been a slew of updates in recent weeks. And finally, we've got um, Alex Janio as, as well. Hi, I'm Alex Janio, consumer business correspondent now. So I've spent the past year and a bit covering industrials as well, and still dabble uh, in the odd industrial company. What I'll be discussing today. Brilliant. So I'm, I'm going to I'm going to ask each of you in turn for a brief overview of, of one of the the many eclectic sectors you cover. Alex Hamer, you've you've been looking uh, among other things at mining. So just just in in very broad terms, how how has the virus impacted uh, the the mining sector? I guess a good way to look at it um, would be from from the ground up. Mines are huge enterprises with you know hundreds if not thousands of employees. A lot of them are in remote areas, um, so a bit insulated, but um, a lot of them have, have actually seen a few positive cases. Um, so looking in South America, in, in Peru and Chile, mines have been have been closed because of positive cases or even just a, as a way to try and stop the spread of, um, of COVID. Most recently, a, a mine in Panama, so one of the world's biggest copper mines, has just been suspended. Um, so it's kind of a, on the ground, it's been... Mines, mines closed temporarily, and then uh, more broadly, companies have, have seen um, quantities prices drop. So, so copper, for example, a few other base metals, and ba- basically everything but gold has seen a, f- a fair drop. So, it's it's pretty widespread. The interesting thing has been that iron ore has has come down a little bit, but because of the way steel making works, where um, smelters need to keep running, it's really expensive to to stop them and get them going again. The iron ore price has actually remained fairly high, even though it is reliant on on China for for demand. Is is the knock on effect to that that we've just got enormous stockpiling then in in, in Chinese warehouses? What's what, what's what's the the slightly longer term view for the steel sector? Well, the iron ore price might come down in the coming weeks. Um, a few analysts have said it will, but um, the the iron ore has been able to make it to to port. Um, so mostly from Australia, some from from um, South America. Um, and from there, there's been a little bit of difficulty in transporting. You know, these are millions of tonnes, um, so they need to be transported by rail and truck from the port system um, to the to the steelmakers. And that's where there have been some problems. But, um, you know, all in all, it's kind of kept, kept about $80 a tonne. Um, and it might actually be when the supply chains inside China recover that we see the, the price coming down. So there is a bit of stockpiling, but... Um, not enough to, to cause um, you know a, a glut um, of supply. So that, that's good news for uh, the you know the big the big iron ore producers Rio and, and BHP particularly. How how have they fared so far? They um they haven't fared too badly. I think you know on on the 9th of March the self affected pretty much everyone. Um, but they're, they're trading um, I think only 15 percent down at that point now. Um, their other commodities, so so for London investors, the big ones um, for dividends, especially are Rio Tinto, BHP, Anglo American, um, and Glencore, and all those companies. You know they're, they're fairly positive. Glencore's paused its dividend decision; um, they haven't cut the dividend entirely. Um, but yeah, the, the the noise coming out of the, the companies is that they're a little bit worried about operational shutdowns. But this isn't the the massive crisis that it would have been um, if they had the balance sheets of um, four or five years ago. Yeah, so I mean that was that was obviously the really big concern when when prices collapsed in the years to 
2016 when those are really leveraged uh, balance sheets. Uh, this time round, are they are they going to be able to sustain a you know prolonged shutdown potentially of some of their some of their mines and 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 uh, commodity prices? You know, if not on the floor, then then deeply depressed. They're in a much better position. I think um, I was just looking at Glencore's debt position over the last few years. And um, in 2015-16, they were their leverage was was over 60%. Now it's it's still fairly high. It's it's 44% what well, it was at the end of 2019, but that's with an extra one billion put on their uh, liability um, line through the the new accounting rules. So so they're a bit below 40%. Rio and BHP have been quite successful in cutting debt as well. Um, you know, if you listen to to the new BHP chief executive uh, Mike Henry. Speaking um, in February, he was talking about kind of you know, supercharging the company and, and talking about how all the balance sheet work was done, basically. Um, and it was his decision to, to manage the portfolio and try and get um, you know, more returns for investors, obviously up the valuation, which they want to do at all times, and kind of look at where BHP was going to go next. And, and they've got some big capital decisions coming up. You know, they've, they've already spent a few billion on a mine. They haven't even given the green light to the, the fertilizer project in Canada. But I think, you know, that they've obviously gone from that position in February to now just trying to, you know, pull some different levers, cut costs further, um, even though they've done a really good job in cutting those costs, especially in, you know, the iron ore operations in Western Australia, um, which are kind of key to their their operations. So the, it's a very different conversation. But overall, to answer your question, they are in a much better position now um, we might see some some dividends disappear for a little while, just so they they have a bit more money to to use um, over the coming months um, and year or so. But yeah, this isn't this isn't a critical um, time where we have to wonder whether the big miners will survive. Okay, Alex, thanks thanks so much for that. Um, well, so from some pockets of potential support to uh, an area where uh, things are looking pretty ropey. Emma, if I can bring you in now, um, we can talk about a couple of elements of broader real estate property uh, market. But I mean, first, let's start where the pain seems to be the greatest, and that's with landlords. So I mean, can you just put it put into in into sort of figures or or terms? How, How badly currently is the, you know, social lockdown and the, the stress of tenants affecting the retail and commercial property owners? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, um, you know, we had the uh, kind of quarterly rent collection date um, kind of last week of March, first week of April for the for the second quarter. A lot of landlords, uh, I mean, very few collected 100% of the rent or even rent in line with last year. The kind of worst affected, unsurprisingly, were retail landlords. So Hammerson collected 29% of its rent that was billed. Um, Hammerson, uh, which has a 50% stake in Bista Village and also owns the Bullring and, you know, has other interests in kind of major retail shopping centres, outlets. They collected just 37% of their rent. So much reduced I think the issue for a lot of these retail landlords is that obviously a lot of retailers were under quite a lot of stress even before the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, Their cash flows were already constrained. So, you know, you have this lockdown and it's really, really putting a lot of pressure onto them. Office landlords, which obviously have kind of retail and food and beverage outlets often on the ground floor around the offices, they they, they again have seen, um, you know, some reduction in rent collection 
sections. Some have held it better than others. So people like Derwent and, and CLS actually had out, updates out today. They've they've performed quite well, collected over eighty percent of their rents. Um, but again, yeah, they, they've seen a shortfall, obviously there. In, in immediate terms, what does this mean for for shareholders in these companies? It sounds it sounds like obviously we've got a, a wide range of scenarios here. Some maybe are getting the cash in, others it, it sounds like are, are probably struggling to struggling to manage their cash flows at the moment. What, what are you expecting in the next month or so? I mean, it really depends, uh, I suppose, on, on kind of how much headroom they've got within their, their debt covenants. Um, so you've got someone like Into, which, you know, they came out even in March and said it's they're getting close to breaching anyway. Then you've got others that have got kind of considerable headroom so they can withstand uh, quite severe falls in uh, the value of the assets and also the kind of rental income. So it really depends on the kind of headroom they've got. I suppose the question for the longer term really is when lockdown lifts, how many of these retailers will be even left in business? And also, I suppose, the kind of rental reductions that they might try to negotiate with landlords even further once they begin trading again, which I suppose is is a kind of bigger issue over the longer term when estimated rental values were already falling long before this this kind of outbreak happened so this this absolutely isn't a case of of buying the dip or looking for bargains it's a short term hit and then a, a, a potentially a longer term yeah I mean, well. sorry yeah exactly um you know we've been bearish on kind of retail landlords for a while now because before before the COVID-19 outbreak they were facing such structural challenges to their businesses you know. Yeah from a, a area of the property market which was um, already looking pretty challenged to, to one which going into this crisis at least looked to be in in in, in better health even if, if people were slightly less positive on the outlook for house sales. House builders I mean with house purchases essentially on hold that's going to be tricky for them how how bit how bad is 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 the hit going to be uh, this year and and are we starting to see any signs that that they may be affected by uh, falling property prices but brings up speed on on um, how things are going there yeah so so obviously as as the lockdowns are kind of taken place obviously work stopped on construction sites they're losing obviously they're going to lose a lot of sales from that um unsurprisingly then obviously we've seen kind of dividend cuts um from most of the house builders uh they've stopped buying any new land i mean they're they're doing what a lot of companies are doing in terms of trying to boost their cash reserves actually we've seen a placing from gleason today um you'd expect more to kind of to kind of follow with that but I suppose the, the kind of question in terms of house prices uh, when the lockdown lifts is really going to be dependent on whether we are heading for a kind of longer term economic downturn or even recession where you would kind of see property prices, house prices fall. Um, and I think I, I wrote in my piece a couple of weeks ago about how house builders are very sensitive to fall is, falls in um in sales prices just because they've got quite a low level of operational gearing. So um, I've seen estimates that every 1% fall in uh, sales prices impacts operating profits on average by about 5%. So they're very, very sensitive to sales prices. But it's 
I suppose it's kind of good to look cautiously towards the sector, but it really will depend um, in terms of sales prices on the kind of broader economic outlook. So all these these uh, dividend cuts, despite their, their massive uh, uh, cash pools on the, on the balance sheets, it doesn't sound like that's too much of an overreaction, given how uncertain things are. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Particularly, obviously, you've got a big chunk of and, and let's not forget, obviously, this is the kind of key spring summer set sales season, right? Um, yeah. I mean, forward yeah. sales will mitigate some of the impact, but no, I, I think it's definitely not an overreaction from them. Okay, Emma. Thanks. Thanks so much for um, bringing us up to speed on the uh, on the property market, um, Alex Janio, If I can turn to you, I mean, among your your very eclectic list of uh, sectors you've 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 written about in this uh, in this magazine are, are supermarkets and airlines, which we've you know we've we've covered in a lot of depth in uh, in, in recent weeks. Uh, what one of the sectors which we can sometimes uh, uh, give slightly less uh, uh, coverage to, just just because they're in, in, in some ways, less familiar names to um, uh, to investors is is sort of electronics and and hardware. Obviously, that that covers a, a broad remit of, of of companies. But in in general terms, how has the the, the virus impacted the the hardware and electronics sector? Thanks, Alex. So yes, you're right. I mean, a lot of these companies they do um, all do fairly different things, but there are some binding themes. These industrial players uh, working in electronics and hardware. Uh, it's worth bearing in mind that uh, most of these businesses are already quite heavily exposed to sluggish economic growth, business sent- sentiment last year, um, and the US-China trade war. And uh, so, and actually, had a thesis kind of towards the end of last year when coronavirus, as you said, looked like a China-specific problem. Well, a lot of these companies actually had to move their operations out of China in order to mitigate against that. And so, I thought, well, actually, maybe has that kind of almost helped insulate them. The answer is now with the global pandemic, no. Um, and one executive did tell me last year also, you know, once you move out, you don't go back. Um, but you know, considering, you know, now is now is a question of considering sort of supply uh, and demand. So which companies are mostly exposed in their production, their supply to China? Um, the answer is quite, quite a few of them. Morgan and Advanced Materials um, and Oxford Instruments, for example, produce a fair amount in China. Um, they've both actually registered and noticed um, a recent upturn in business sentiment uh, output. They've been able to reopen their factories um, as we see the coronavirus pandemic recede. So perhaps now, now more, it's a question of demand and budgets, capital expenditure being slashed elsewhere. There's less demand for industrial products. Um, and that will probably, as we see with the potential for recession uh, for the rest of the year, um, hit these companies hard in the long term um, as opposed to just short term production supply. Okay, thanks. Th- thanks for that overview. I, I suppose the, the other element for um, industrials, obviously, is the, the thing to pay attention to for investors is is cash flow and, and working capital. Are we seeing any any pinch points in how the supply chains may be disrupted or demand may be falling very sharply in some areas, which are affecting some some companies uh, more than others? I mean, generally, we're seeing uh, quite a lot of outflows, uh, particularly with com- and companies exposed to automotives. Um, businesses are taking actions to shore the balance sheets. Uh, we've seen dividend cuts um, everywhere, along with executive pay uh, reductions and drawing down the credit lines. Um, also, along with uh, deferred sort of non-essential capital expenditure, those businesses. There are self-help measures that that, that companies, in, in particular, you know, which might be looking in, in in trouble, which they can bring to the table. 
Yes, and actually a fair amount of these companies pretty liquid already. I mean, Renishaw um, had a well, directors already waived their rights to dividends and they've withdrawn that. Um, but they're in a pretty health, healthy net cash position of 71.3 million. Oxford Instruments, uh, another company with net cash is 60 million. So investors may be thinking, well, the growth rates expected for the coming years will be pretty slow. They're pretty, they're, but they're pretty defensive and resilient businesses right now. Good stuff. Alex, thanks for um, the overview there on, on the industrial sector. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone. That was uh, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Alex, for uh, hosting that. I mean, there's lots more sectors we've covered. We, we didn't cover every sector, did we, Alex? What have we looked at in the uh, the update? So I, in the in the normal 350 roundup, I think it comes to 30 uh, odd sectors. So we've tried to condense them to the sort of the, the 20 most recognisable or most or most followed uh, sectors. So elsewhere in there, we've got insurers, banks, obviously the supermarkets and general retail. Yeah, lots, lots more, lots more in there. So all, all the all, all the big names, particularly you know where dividends are involved as well. We've we've we tried to give our of our view there. And if companies which investors and, and listeners do hold aren't listed there, then again, as we said, that spreadsheet that we've put together and we'll we'll try and keep updating is another good reference point for how companies are doing. Okay, thanks, thanks everyone. That was uh, that was really really interesting. Um, thank you very much, Alex, for uh, for arranging that. And obviously, there there are a lot more sectors that we've covered in the uh, in the piece. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'd encourage everyone to go away and read that. Thank you all. So now I'm joined by Phil Oakley on The Hangout to talk about his magazine column this week and what he makes of the topsy-turvy markets that we're seeing. Uh, the magazine column is actually inspired uh, very much by the works of Benjamin Graham, in particular uh, his seminal book, The Intelligent Investor. Phil, tell us why these, at these times and when markets are doing what they're doing, um, it's probably a really good time to be paying, paying very much uh, attention to uh, what Benjamin Graham uh, observed about stock markets back in the, uh, the distant, what seems like the distant past. And I think it's fair to say that Intelligent Investor is, is one of the best books on investing for the private investor. It was written for the private investor and has, you know, is packed full of lots of good advice, explains really well in a way that most seasoned private investors can, can understand. Now, obviously, with all books that, you know, the book was first written in 1949, and the last, the last book that Graham wrote about was in the early 1970s. As with all investment books, they do age, and sometimes what was discussed 50, 70 years ago isn't really applicable today. But there are two chapters within that book. Chapter 8, which deals with fluctuating stock prices or investment prices in general, or volatility, as people call it today. And um, Chapter 20, which is the margin of safety, something called the margin of safety, which is what Graham and probably Warren Buffett as well see as the main thing that investors should concentrate when they when they're buying buying shares what i've decided to do is to take those two things explain what they mean and then try them apply them to the current stock market so how should the investor think about the current fluctuations in today's stock market and is there a margin of safety in buying shares now. Let, let's start with the fluctuations, um, because that's obviously the thing that's on people's minds most at the moment. Markets fluctuate all the time, as you say, uh, and, as, and as Graham observed. But what happens when you get big fluctuations like we're seeing at the moment is, is it 
generates a massive emotional response, which which fuels those big fluctuations even more. Talk about the sort of behavioural aspects of what we're seeing today. I mean, what Graham says is that, you know, and it's much easier said than done, we all know this, is that you shouldn't get spooked out by these wild fluctuations and you should use the market as your servant to take for you to take advantage of as you can. So when prices fall and valuations of shares become more attractive, you should buy. And when they get too high and there's too much optimism or over they're over optimistic about a company's future, you should you, you should use the market, the price that it's offering you. Um, to sell. And what I think is interesting about the current market is that it's quite hard, I think, to see the fall in the market that we've seen between sort of the middle of February and the middle of March as really offering opportunities to buy hindsight's a wonderful thing because what hindsight's telling us that that you know you've seen the rally back since then you know and we've seen it in you know the really battered the battered shares you know in the travel shares you know i mentioned the national express is one that i've kept an eye on recently because i've written about it and that's pretty much doubled in the last two three weeks a lot of these shares have, have come back quite strongly but has there been any kind of, you know, this, let me sort of get onto the margin of safety bit. Could you have safely predicted the company's earnings conservatively over the next few years to come to the conclusion that the shares would, were a screaming buy? And I think some of them maybe you could. You know, we mentioned, you know, I mentioned National Express in my, in an article and also in the Alpha reports and on this podcast that, you know, those shares got very, very depressed. Um, and the, if you took the took a very conservative view of what those profits could come back to, and I think, you know, WH Smith is the same, then you could have made the case for saying that you could you could buy the shares, buy the shares now, and you might have a reasonable chance of making a good return. What you don't know is what your share of the profits is going to be. And obviously, we've seen WH Smith place nearly 14% of its share capital this week, so you get diluted. And obviously, you just don't know whether a highly indebted company like National Express has to do the same. And, so, and I guess we, don't, we also don't really know to what extent earnings will bounce back to where they were before and over what time frame. Absolutely. You know, I think I think the assumption that you know, we can sweep this all under the carpet and that businesses that have been closed down or suppressed can be essentially brought back to life as quickly as flicking a light switch, I think is wishful thinking. I mean, one, um, one of my worries about the idea of, you know, buying shares that uh, are even cheaper than they were before is that, A, because we don't really have that earnings context, we don't know what a true valuation actually is. Um, but also, And because we don't know what a true valuation actually is, we're just speculating. And, you know, this is something I, th- you know, I think you mentioned that Graham, uh, Ben Graham points out is, you know, he, he's an investor. Uh, if, you're not, if you're not using some kind of fundamental analysis, you, you are in the business of speculation. And, that, and there is, that is a risky business to be in. Absolutely. I mean, and I think what, what this boils down to is 
three things, and these are applicable all the time, not just, not just when you've got extreme levels of volatility. You start with the business first. Always start with the business when you're looking at investment. And you look at the quality, stability, and visibility of its profits. What we've seen is that companies with highly profitable companies with very stable, predictable profits tend to do well if they can grow. And we've seen that in the upswing and we've seen that in the downswing, that they've, they've protected investors better than those that, that haven't got those, those characteristics. The other thing is the price that you pay. And so the, the, the investment versus the speculation is a combination between paying the right price, not overpaying, and buying a good business. And where you don't get the protection is in cheap shares in poor quality businesses because they get found out at times like this and you find out why they were cheap in the first place. But, but I mean, there's an, there is another aspect to this and you've written about it in your columns, Phil, which is that uh, even a quality business or, you know, what people have been describing as quality lately, which seems to offer predictable earnings, predictable growth, even businesses like that, and I think you write about Microsoft in your in your column this week and have done before, isn't entirely immune to to what's going on in the wider economy. So 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 even there, there you know, with these quality companies, there is sure, there is surely an element of speculation which is not built into current valuations. Uh, absolutely, you know, I, I think we're going to find out over the next few weeks and months that there are few companies with bulletproof earnings. And that leads you on to, you know, if we talk about Microsoft, because Microsoft's a good example, and I think, you know, most of our listeners understand what, what Microsoft does. You come to the, you come to the valuation of, of the shares, and this, this is a company that's on over 30 times its last 12 months trailing earnings per share. So, so the valuation is high, and, you're, and you know, if you look at Gra- Graham, always used to turn PEs upside down and express them as not price over earnings, but earnings over price. And I actually prefer that because it, it, it gives you an interest rate. I always think that people can understand interest rates much easier than they can understand a number. Because it actually, people understand an, you know, an interest rate on a savings account and a bond. So why not express the valuation of a share in an interest rate? So if you look at what the, what the valuation of Microsoft is at the moment, it's about 3%. That's, that's your earnings over the share price. So if you were buying that business, that is what, what your claim on that share is. It's 3%. Now, that's a very low rate of interest historically. Um, it's seen as attractive or has been seen as attractive because there's no return anywhere else. And that return can grow. But if you look at the way that you make money from a share, there's only two ways, there's three ways, there's essentially two ways that you make money from a share. Earnings growth, which then some of that may get paid out to you in a dividend, and a rise in the share price, which is again driven by the earnings. But to make money from Microsoft from here, starting with a very low 3% return, you've got to believe that earnings will grow very strongly, which they might, and also that the market will continue to accept a very low interest rate on the shares, a very high PE ratio. Now, 
for the last few years, it has done that. Um, but whether it will continue to do so, I don't know, and, no, and nobody knows. I think most people assume that interest rates on bonds and cash are probably not going up anytime soon. But the other thing I think that people, and I didn't write about this in the piece, I've written about this in my Alpha report, is inflation. People have accepted owning bonds which yield less than inflation. But let's say inflation goes to 5%, yeah? Will people be prepared to own Microsoft on a 3% earnings yield? Now, I'm not saying that inflation is going to take off, but there is a risk with all this money printing, potential shortages, the ability of the economy to respond in terms of supplying goods that have been shut down. There is a risk that we could get some inflation. There's also a risk that Microsoft earnings will disappoint. And this is where it comes back to, you know, you think you're paying a very high price for perceived quality. Microsoft's one of the better better shares that you could probably bank on. But but there are other, there are so many other companies out there which trade on these very low interest rates, very high PE ratios. That the margin of safety in relation to, you know, that business's future prospects is actually quite low. Yeah, you've actually that, put you put a little table together in uh, in the magazine piece, looking at actually how some very good quality businesses. What what's driven their share price performance is not um, necessarily earnings growth, uh, but re-rating rating expansion. Yeah, and, and there's there's two 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 really good examples in the UK. Two excellent businesses, Spirex Sarco, which I think is one of the best businesses listed on the UK stock exchange. Has been incredibly has incredibly stable profits. You know, its profit margin has stayed in the sort of low twenty percent right through the last sort of fifteen years or so. Right? Through the Great Recession, the financial crisis, been rock solid, and it's a superb business. Um, but if you actually look at that business over the last fifteen years, fifteen years ago, you probably picked this share up on. 15 times earnings or something like that. 14.6, How much? 14.6. All right. There we are. Yeah. And now it's on what? About 35? 34.1. Yeah. So it's on th- this is trailing, trailing earnings per share. Now, the earnings have grown over that time. But if, the, if you had just taken the earnings of, and I've, in the magazine, I look at the P 15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago. And look at what the share price would have been if you just apply the increases in earnings to those PE ratios. I think over the last 15 years, about a, you know, I think most, you know, a huge chunk of the increase, let me put it into numbers. If the PE had stayed the same on Spirex Sarko as it was 15 years ago, and you'd look at the earnings growth, the shares would be about £33 today. There, last time I looked, they were 82 and I think I think with Halma again, you've got a similar similar discrepancy. So you've seen a huge re-rating of these shares, and clearly the margin of safety at fourteen times PE is a lot higher than it is at thirty-five. And you know, for years we've had a situation where low interest rates, money printing, basically don't fight the Fed. And also the lack of any real alternative has driven the share prices of these 
of these businesses to very, very high levels, valuations to very high levels. Hey, I mean, but one, now- one thing I would say, though, Phil, is, I mean, you know, you mentioned there is no alternative. There is still no alternative. Is, I mean, is this, is this what's driving the markets back, you know, to where they came from? Yeah, I, I, I'm about to say that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there, is, there is still no alternative, but the risks are going up. I'm being offered to buy a business for 3% return. And I don't know what it's going to earn. I don't know, you know, you know when things were normal, you know, you remember, remember this whole sort of bond proxy mm, type argument? Absolutely. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that Halmer and Spirex Sarko were bond proxies, by the way. No, I think um, we're talking more about the Unilevers of this world. Yeah. The, vis- the visibility, yes, is better than most. Um, and I'm sure, you know, Unilever's sold sold quite a lot more food in the last few months. But they aren't completely Bond-like, you know. And then you've got the argument, you know, with the likes of Unilever is, you know, it has been struggling to grow. It faces competition. It's not just, you know, we, we tend to be talking, the discussion at the moment is very much sort of a macro-type, general economy-type thing. And we've also got to take into account that these companies face their own specific business and competitive issues as well. And that is, that is risk. That is risk. And it all comes down to, you know, how has the stock market priced risk? And the, the issue is that even, even for businesses that are perceived to be lower risk, the price attached to those shares has now become very high, even even in this current market where we are today. I know the way you sum it up in your uh, your uh, magazine article is that also that the predictability they offer is nowhere near as good as it once was. So risk is mispriced, and and you also have have uh, a, a worse idea of where these businesses will be in a few years' time. Yeah, I, I would say look, businesses that are perceived to be pri- to be businesses that are perceived to be less risky a price very highly, which makes them risky for investors. We talked about emotion, you know, driving this market behaviour we're seeing. Is there a danger that we look around us and, you know, it isn't great and we're stuck indoors, that that, that you and I uh, and others are perhaps being overly pessimistic? That, I yeah. think that, yes, I do think, I do do acknowledge that. Put my hands up and say, yes, there is, there is that. And, you know, we could be in a situation where, we look back on this kind of conversation and, and say, look, we got it wrong. We, we, we were a bit too, bit too pessimistic. Yeah, I, I, I I'd, don't... Counter, I'd counter that. You're trying to, I think you're trying to be dispassionate about this. You're trying to, trying to, you can only go on what you can see. And investors are always in a position where they they don't know the future. The assumption is is that the future will be very similar to the present and the recent past. And you know, we've come along with something like this, and nobody knows what to do because they've never seen it before. They just assume that oh yeah, it'll it'll go away. But I I actually I I actually think that what this is this is a you know, a turning point for me because I, I've long held the view that the foundations of the economy 
you know, the actual thing that leads to the flow of money between people and businesses and businesses and businesses and the flow of cash has been on a shaky ground for a while in terms of the amount of debt, particularly the amount of debt, particularly things like low rates of earnings of wage growth. And I think there are there are lots of problems. And I think the, this low interest rate world and you know the money printing that's gone on for the last 11 years um, has papered over a lot of cracks. Yeah, but I mean, it seems to be happening again. I mean, and I, I came across a, a great blog by a guy called Michael Batnick called The Irrelevant Investor. And he was kind of dismissive of the idea that some have, have been touting that, you know, we are on the cusp of a new Great Depression. Um, I read that. And, and his point, his point, which I think is an interesting one, uh, is that, yes, you know, we are seeing, and I think uh, he describes it as the, the quickest destruction of business fundamentals that we have ever seen. But on the other hand, the government is pumping trillions of dollars into the economy so everything's going to be okay but isn't isn't that the thing that's got us into this trouble in the first place yeah and i think it assumes it assumes that money printing is a free lunch right and and so far you can forgive people for thinking that money printing has been a free lunch because it's inflated bonds bond prices share prices property prices and there's been no consequences to pay in terms of what we all pay for our goods and services and that's because a lot of the money that was printed went into the financial markets. It didn't actually go into the real economy. Okay, some of it went into mortgages and that kind of thing. This time, this time I think it's slightly different in two ways. One is that you are getting unprecedented amounts of money chucked at this, a lot more than the, the financial crisis. And also, some of that money is going to end up in the pockets of, of households. And that's going to get spent. So it's good. that money is going to enter, enter circulation. Now, whether that create, if that creates inflation, that is a price that we will have to pay. So that is part of the bill. The other thing as well is, is that the deficits, the deficits of Western economies, in fact, you know, most economies, government deficits, are just going to go through the roof. And the question is, how do you pay for those deficits? And, you know, after the war, Second World War, which is what people refer back to in terms of, you know, such a big shock to, to government finances, as we're seeing now, taxes went up. You know, taxes went up. Could taxes go up again? And, you know, how, how does the government actually balance the books or do we just say well it doesn't matter you know interest rates are so low we can get our friends in the bank of england and the federal reserve they can just they can just pay for all this and because everybody is doing the same thing and you know currencies are a relative game it all comes out in the wash and it's happy days that's that's the kind of you know argument that you know, you've got to seriously consider that, you know, you might think it's flawed, but you think, okay, this might might be all right for a bit. I mean, it's a, it sounds to me like just creating money out of thin air, which is, is a hard thing to get your head around. It's a very hard thing to get you, get your thing around. We've seen it, we've seen it done historically and we've seen it uh, end, end very badly. And I think, you know, if... What we don't know is at the moment we're seeing a lot of money being sucked out, seeing a, seeing a huge downward force on, on the economy. 
and therefore, try, you know, you're trying to keep the. It's like trying to keep a fire going, yeah. So if you assume that you know money, money is wood for a fire. You're throwing wood onto the fire to keep it burning, and um, but you might be throwing a bit of petrol on it as well. And I think I think the thing that nobody knows is that you know what happens if. Now we all want we all want to come out of this, you know. We, we all want to get back to where we were, but assuming we can do this without having to pay a price, I'm not sure that's the right. I'm not sure we can get away with that. And and I think that the stock this, this is another thing that the stock market doesn't seem to want to price. It doesn't, you know. I wish I wasn't having this conversation. You know, I wish I wish that you know I could look at this. In a much more favourable way, but I'm finding it. I'm finding it really hard. I, I would just um, like. To, I would just like to talk about companies, Phil, and uh, and and uh, their businesses and their fundamental valuations. It doesn't seem like we can do that at the moment, really. Look, <laughs> I can sit. Back, I could. I could easily sit back here and just say, "Oh, don't worry, just buy and hold, and you'll be all right," because you've always been all right buying and holding. Well. That's actually a lie if you're a UK investor. Buy and hold has not been great. On the FTSE, think, on the FTSE 100. Well, even, you know, if you, if you look at buy and hold on the S&P 500, going back, this is like 20%. This is 20 years. So from the dot-com crash to the, the recent peak, I think the total sharehold, annual shareholder return was about 4.8%. 4. That's all right. You know that's that's you know that's better than inflation, which is what what investors are always trying to do. They're always trying to grow the the buying power of their money. But you've taken a hell of a lot of risk to achieve to achieve actually quite a low return over the last twenty years. Yeah, the returns are great over the last ten years. But most people, you know, over twenty, you know, you can make returns look great to suit your argument. I've just done it. You know, I've just done it over twenty years. You know it's hard, and I don't know, is it? And so I think I'm, I've never struggled as much in trying to in trying to work out what's going on mm. in you know the twenty twenty odd twenty three years I've been doing this. I don't think uh, you. I don't think you're alone, Phil. I don't think you're alone. It's, uh... It's a it's a very bizarre time. I was just going back to the, to the point about you know who's paying. I, I actually was sent some research by one of my colleagues, Alex Newman, who uh, you heard earlier uh, from B of A Securities, uh, talking about tax and, and what what increases in tax could do to corporate earnings as well. So so I think the research is something like five percent increase in corporate tax will mean a six percent reduction in the value of European equities. So so yes, when the bill is presented at some point in the future, that has to has, have a negative impact on equity prices. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, there's a bill. There's a bill to be paid here. No, yeah, it does seem to be the bit that we're forgetting. The one thing I would perhaps suggest is we often hear, though, the argument that if there is an inflationary environment, equities is also the place to be. Uh, well, that depends how big inflation is. I mean, you, I, I, I talk to people who you know who remember the 1970s and uh, where you had very high rates of inflation, and the stock market was a awful place to be in 1974 i i've i've worked i worked with people who were who were in the market in 1974 and things were so bad you know i think the london market went down to a p of four in 1974 and this is when inflation was you know over 20 percent 
And I, I know pe- things got so bad that stockbrokers got me- one 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 person who used to used, who used to uh, be a very senior stockbroker in one of the businesses I worked for actually got a milk round in 1974 because things were so bad. Um, and, and, and that's an example that of, of what, you know, very high inflation can, can do to, to stock markets. I think in, in the, general, the general view that, that stocks are an inflation hedge um, has worked well when inflation has been quite moderate. But you see, the only reason that inflation is, stocks have been seen as a hedge is because um, companies have been able to increase their prices to to cover their costs. And the only thing I would say is we live in a different world now where the bargaining power of workers is nowhere near as what it was 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, where they were able to get wage rises to cover the cost of rising prices. And it caused no end of problems and things, something called a wage price spiral. Everything just kept feeding on each other. And, you know, Companies, companies may be able to put up prices, but you know whether whether the uh, whether the consumer their incomes go up in line with rising prices, we don't know. And that's what you that's what you need for stocks to be a hedge, because if your customer hasn't got enough money to pay for it, then they're going to buy less of what you sell. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so basically, I mean, there, there, there seem to be a lot of big unknowns out there, and uh, we're going uh, down some very dark paths, aren't we, John? We are. Should we, should we end on a positive note? Uh, I know you've uh, you've been impressed with one company this week that's put out some results. Tesco. Let's talk Tesco. I used to loathe this company when when I was a, I actually was an analyst on Tesco very briefly about sixteen, seventeen years ago. I used to hate it then because uh, I, I I thought it had become. You know, a very arrogant company. I thought its growth, the quality of its growth was actually quite poor. It was just basically building out its land bank and buying up stuff. All of that turned out to be true, Phil. Yeah. And it's been humbled. It's been humbled. And the guy who's been running it for the last five and a bit years, who's leaving, done a really good job. And he, and you're beginning to, you know, you're seeing that, you know, the, the ship has been definitely. Definitely stabilised, and it's it's been you've got a very clean, much cleaner business now in Tesco. Things are still quite tough though, but you know the results the results that came out yesterday were really quite good with a few with a couple of caveats. Um, and the profits were up, you know, nearly fourteen percent. The cash flow of the business, the supermarkets business. You know, it was really, really good. This business now generating, you know, two billion pounds of underlying free cash flow, up from about eight hundred and a bit a year ago, and uh, it's doing it through rising profits. In the past, you know, Tesco Tesco had always generated a lot of its cash flow from squeezing its suppliers, and it seems to be treating its suppliers a lot better these days, uh, which is which is good to see. And we've got a big increase in the dividend. We've got a nearly 60, 60% increase in the dividend. The caveat is, is that things are tough out there still. There was virtually no revenue growth. And, you know, I still think that the big four supermarkets have got the wrong business model to, to do well in this UK market. They're too big. Their stores are too big. They're selling too many goods. And their costs are too high per square foot. 
You know, you can't compete. You know, if you've got a supermarket with 30,000, 40,000 different items in there and you've got, you know, 50,000 plus square feet of selling space, it's very difficult to compete with Aldi and Lidl who are on 15,000, 20,000 square feet selling only, only 1,500 goods with concentrated buying, very lean operation and can, can just can outcompete you on price. But Tesco's actually, out of the big four, Tesco's has actually done it quite well. It's had a bit of help on the way with, I think buying Booker has definitely helped it uh, in, terms of, in terms of buying power and cost savings and that, and that kind of thing. But this, this business looks to be in a pretty good place now. It's probably not going to grow very much, but I think that it will generate lots of cash, it will probably still take out a bit of cost and it's got a customer offer which is a lot better than certainly that certainly it's other big competitors and what that should lead to is that um it should be able to have a modest growth in growth in its dividend it's an it's an income stock now it's not it's not a growth stock it looks like it's going to take a bit of a hit this year from all the extra running costs and staff wages. Um, you know, if, if this sort of lockdown continues for quite a long time, we're talking about nearly a billion pounds of extra cost. And some, there's about 600 million savings from not paying business rates. But the one thing that can save Tesco is volume, is selling more stuff. Because if it sells more stuff, it makes more profit gross profit and that can pay these these costs so with a bit of luck this is a this is a business that probably can do okay from a, from a profit point of view the, the one sort of cloud is on the bank tesco bank um makes about 200 million of profit out of a total profit of about 3 billion for tesco as a whole and it's actually you know quite good quite a good bank you know it's got a 20%, what's known as a tier one capital ratio of about 20%, which is essentially it's, it's like it's equity and it's buffer against losses. And it's going to need that buffer because it looks like it's expecting a lot of its customers or a few, quite enough of its customers to default on their loans. And it's, that bank is, good chances that bank's going to go from making nearly 200 million of profit to making a loss next year. And that's that's a sort of a bit of a cloud. But on the positive side, they are getting over $10 billion or over £8 billion of money from selling their Thai and Malaysian business. And that means they're going to be able to completely pay off the pension fund deficit of $2.5 billion which also help cash flow in future years. And shareholders are going to get 5 billion special dividend, which is about 51p a share. So I'm not saying this is a great, a great business, but I think, you know, you look at the shares, they're offering a yield on the annual dividend of about 4.3, special dividend on that, cash flow is good, debt's coming down, it's still in a tough market, but, you know, 
we're looking at we're looking at a stock market today where the reliability of dividends has really been exposed, and uh, this looks this looks a good place to me. Indeed, a, a rare a rare haven in today's markets. There you go. Cheers, Phil. Thank you very much. That's been really useful. I think uh, you know it highlights some of the difficulties investors face uh, at the moment, and. We've sort of rounded up a lot of those uh, difficulties, as uh, we've, we've already discussed in our FTSE uh, 350 update this month. Uh, let me talk you through what else we have in the magazine. Uh, talking of Tesco, Algae Hall is looking at blue chip shares uh, that are actually doing OK and holding their own uh, during the sell off. On the subjects of income, we're looking at healthcare property REITs, one of the few segments of the property market that's proving resilient to this downturn. We've got John Barron, along with lots of other comment in the magazine from Chris and Michael Taylor, the trader. Results are coming back in. Uh, we've got a couple this week, uh, again, but uh, it seems that companies will start reporting. We'll start reporting them in the magazine from next week. Thank you all for listening. Thanks again, Phil. Thank you, John. As I said... Uh, the big big feature this week is the FTSE 350 COVID-19 update, uh, which the team did an amazing job pulling together. Pick it up in all good news agents if you can find one, uh, or get along to Tesco, because I'm pretty sure that they're still open and stocking the Investors Chronicle. Uh, or get online and subscribe, where you can also pick up the massive spreadsheet that we've put together with every FTSE 350 company, every impact from the COVID-19 virus, and every corporate action that they've taken as a result. And we'll be keeping that updated uh, in the weeks ahead, but you need a digital sub to read it. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back again next week. Speak soon and stay safe.